God's Word. We're continuing on through 2 Peter, and this morning we'll look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 3b through 10a. 2 Peter 2, beginning at verse 3, the second half. This is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous lots, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, as we consider this sober message on the reality of judgment, I want to ask that you will send your spirit. Jesus promised that when he came, he would convict the world of sin, specifically unbelief in Jesus, of righteousness, of how we lack righteousness on our own, and of judgment, and a reminder that our only way of escape is through faith in Christ. So, Father, help us to see these truths and help us to respond to these truths for our everlasting joy. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's been said that God's word is designed to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. In other words, when God's world, excuse me, God's word is preached without being sugar-coated, it afflicts those who are comfortable in their sin and their rebellion against God. But it also comforts those who are afflicted because of the wickedness and perversion that they see paraded in the streets. The Bible tells us that they will be judged. Last week, if you were with us, we talked about the serious nature of false teaching. Peter told us that these prophets teach damnable heresies. In other words, their teaching will lead people to everlasting destruction. He told us that many will follow their sensual ways, which means that many people will be left astray because of their example. And I didn't highlight this last week, but I should have. Peter said many will be led astray by their example as well as their teaching. And among other things, Peter mentioned that they tell people what they want to hear instead of the truth that they need to hear so that they can live lives to the glory of God and be confident that they will enter into God's eternal kingdom. Now, after exposing the false teachers for who they are and what they are all about, Peter is now going to tell us 
that judgment awaits these imposters who claim to speak on God's behalf. And if you're taking notes, Peter has three points in this passage. He wants us to know about the promise of judgment. And then he wants us to know about the examples of judgment. And then he wants us to know about the principle of judgment. So let's begin with the promise of judgment. And we see this in the second half of verse 3. Their condemnation, talking about the false teachers, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. By saying that their condemnation was from long ago, this is a reminder that God has sovereignly decreed that all evil is going to be punished. And then he says that this judgment is not idle. It's not like a car that's just sitting there idling, not going anywhere. God's condemnation is not idle. It is moving in the direction that God intends for it. And then he also adds, nor is destruction asleep. The God who executes judgment and destruction is not asleep. In fact, he never sleeps and he never slumbers. Now, Peter is telling us about this promise of judgment for at least two reasons. First of all, So let us know that these false teachers are going to pay a heavy price for their destructive heresies. And second, to warn false teachers of the judgment that is waiting for them if they don't repent. Now, here's an observation that I've made about unbelievers. Uh, When you talk about judgment or hell, and you can tell me if you've made this observation as well, but I have noticed that there are basically two general responses when you talk about the judgment to come or hell waiting for people who reject Jesus Christ, the first is anger. Anger. It's interesting that many atheists often speak highly of of the character of Jesus, uh, but the late atheist Christopher Hitchens despised the teaching of Jesus because he spoke so often about hell. In fact, Jesus spoke more often about hell than any other teacher or preacher. Now, I find it interesting that he was upset about that teaching. And I find it kind of confusing that anybody else who doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in the judgment to come, would be upset about that, that kind of teaching. I, I don't go to bed at night, turn off my light, and, and worry about the boogeyman attacking me from underneath my bed because I don't believe in the boogeyman. So in all seriousness, if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe there is a judgment to come, if you don't believe that there is eternal destruction to come, then why are you getting angry with preachers and teachers who talk about this? Here's what I suspect. In their heart of hearts, they actually do believe it. This is what Paul says in Romans 1.32. Though they know God's righteous decree. Notice that. Though they know God's righteous decree. That those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to others who practice them as well. Why do they get angry? Because you're reminding them of what they're trying to suppress. Another response is denial. Talk about the judgment to come, and you can just deny it. And there are many ways that you can deny the judgment to come. 
Uh, one way is to skew the character of God, and I think this is actually quite common. Many people believe that God is a love. God is the God of love, and he is. I've told you that many times, and I'll tell you many times again. But the teaching that they get about God is that he's a God of love, 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 and only love. Not realizing that while he's the God of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, he is also a holy, righteous, and just God. I think that people also deny the judgment to come because they forget that God is a sovereign God who is actively involved in the affairs of man. I think even many, many Christians can be practical deists. They can hold to the view that God created the world, and it's kind of like God is the clockmaker. You know, he, he wound up the clock, and he let the world run by all by itself, and then he kind of stepped back, and he said, well, let's see how things turned out, and he doesn't intervene in what's going on in the world, and he's not actively involved, but God is actively involved in what's, what's going on in the world. More to the point, he is actively involved in, in what's going on in your life. But this denial is one of the things that Peter is dealing with in his, his second epistle. This is what we read in 2 Peter 3, beginning at verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Christ's coming in judgment. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And notice what Peter says. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of the Lord, and that by means of these the world that was then existed was deluged with water and perished. They're saying, where is this coming of Christ in judgment? I don't see it. Now, this coming of Christ, I believe, refers to the coming of Christ that took place in 70 A.D. At this point, we are in the mid-60s as Peter writes this letter, and he says, where is this coming? You've been talking about this for decades now, and I don't see it. Uh, many others take this as the second coming of Christ in judgment. Either way, the principle is the same. Things are just going to continue on like they have been since the beginning. God is not going to interrupt my life. Life will just continue on business as usual. And Peter says, you are in for a great awakening. Jesus warned of this judgment to come that people were unaware of during Noah's day. In Matthew 24, 37 and following, he said, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. People will be just enjoying their life eating, drinking, getting married, getting up, going to work, and then all of a sudden, judgment is going to come. Here we are today. Judgment has not come upon us. You know what that means? 
even right now, th this is an illustration of God's mercy, God's patience, perhaps, giving all of us an opportunity to come to him. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slow, slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I need to ask, have you come to repentance? Have you recognized your sin that you know you're, you're guilty of? And have you asked God to forgive you? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ so instead of being punished for your sin, Jesus could take your place on the cross and you could be forgiven? Perhaps you're here right now, today, listening to this message because of God's mercy and patience towards you. I pray that all of you have done that. So first, Peter mentions the promise of judgment. And then he gives us the examples of judgment. And he gives us three examples to remind us that God has and God will punish sin. Now, as I said, I believe the judgment that Peter is talking about in his epistle refers to A.D. 70. But the warning also relates to the final judgment that will take place at the second coming of Christ, the judgment that we talk about in our creed, where he will judge the living and the dead, where all people will stand before the throne of Christ and give an account for how they have lived. And to remind us that God is the God of judgment, we have three examples. And the first one has to do with the fallen angels. In verse 4, Peter says, And if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. When Satan rebelled, he took a third of the angels with him. And Peter says, God cast them into hell. Now, the word for hell here is Tartarus. It's only found here in Peter, and it actually comes from Greek mythology. Homer refers to this, to this word in his poetry. And it refers to the darkest portion of hell. So they were cast into the darkest portions of hell as they wait the judgment to come. Now, when it comes to hell, there's a lot of images that are, that are used. And we have to be careful not to be too literal. Otherwise, we're going to be confused. This, this last week, I was asked a great question about hell, the images of hell. And I was asked, how can hell be fire and utter darkness at the same time? And I said, that's a good question. <laughs> because if hell has fire, then of course you have light and it can't be utter darkness at the same time. And I said, those are just images. You don't want to press them too far or be too literal. The fire reminds us of the pain and the torture that we are experiencing. And perhaps the darkness is a reminder of the, the loneliness that we are going to experience in hell. I'm sure you've heard this people say, well, I'm going to go to hell because all my friends are going to be there. and It's going to be one big party. You might be surprised that you're all by yourself in pitch darkness alone. But those are images. They are scary images. But here's the thing. They're scary images, but the reality is actually even more frightening. So we do... 
we want to be careful with images. And my purpose here is not to get bogged down into all the details. I want you to see Peter's main point. And his main point is that if God didn't even spare the angels, then human beings created in his image who rebelled against him as well will face the judgment to come. So that's the first example, the fallen angels. And then the next one is a judgment that took place at Noah's flood. In verse 5, Peter continues on. And if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald or preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now I'm reading from the ESV and it adds, and if, so it's adding that word, if he, just to help us follow Peter's thought, because he's going to say, if God judged angels, if he judged the ancient world, if he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, but delivered the righteous, then we can be delivered. So he's just trying to help us follow his argument. But here Peter is simply saying that if necessary, God will judge the entire world. This is how Genesis 6, 11 and following describes what was taking place during the days of Noah. We read, now the earth was corrupt in God's sights, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door on the side of the ark. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. God is going to destroy all flesh. Now, I know some of you have... uh, been to the Creation Museum in Kentucky, and they have built a life-size model of Noah's Ark. I haven't seen it yet. I'm looking forward to seeing it, but think of what a massive construction project that was. I know some of you construction guys can appreciate that. Noah had to build this giant ship, and there were no lumber yards available, okay? No power tools or battery-operated saws in order to cut the lumber. No menards down the street to go and get more nails or another five-gallon bucket of pitch for the outside of the ark. None of that was available. Noah wasn't able to say, hey, we need to call up the lumber yard and order some more lumber. Instead, they had to go out into the forest and, and cut it down themselves. Noah didn't have a crane that he could rent for the day to help put the rafters in place. He did this all by hand. He worked on this ark week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. 
Commentators debate how long it took, but we know it took at least decades. Now imagine the mockery that preacher Noah faced as he built this giant ship on dry ground. You can just imagine. He's starting to put together the frame. His neighbors can all see, what is Noah building over there? That is massive. Noah, what are you doing? I am building an ark. A what? An ark. A giant boat. Why are you doing that? Because God has told me that he has had it. He has had it with how people are living, with their corruption and their violence. And he is going to send a rain, and he is going to drown every living human being. And I am building this ark so that I can preserve two of all the animals. And anybody who enters into this ark that I am building, they will be saved. They will not be destroyed when God sends the flood. Can you imagine the responses that he got? Because we know nobody took him seriously because nobody entered the ark other than his family. But he continued to build, and he continued to preach, and he continued to warn, but the people just ignored his warnings. Now, with this example, Peter introduces the second point that's central to his argument. He says, not only does God judge sinners, but he rescues the righteous. So God's going to destroy the world, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and his family, and he rescued them. So the wicked are destroyed, but the godly are preserved. And then the final example is that of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. To this day, the word Sodom is synonymous with homosexuality and sexual perversion. In Luke 19, we're told of two angels that came to the city of Sodom, and they, and they look like men, and, and Lot, exercising hospitality, tells these two men that they need to come to his house so that they can be saved and so that he can take care of them. And then we read in Genesis 19, beginning at verse 4, But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, they all came out, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. In other words, that we may have sexual relations with them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Not exactly Lot's shining moment. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. 
We will de deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men, speaking of the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Even after being struck with blindness, these men could hardly be restrained from raping the angels. They're still groping for the door, trying to break in to Lot's house. And then in verse 7, Peter goes on and says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Three times Lot is described as righteous. And we probably wouldn't know that from the Genesis accounts because he doesn't exactly look like a shining hero of the faith. But Peter tells us as he was living among those people, he was tormented day after day by the conduct that he saw and hear that was taking place among him. And there were only three who were rescued, Lot and his two daughters, which means he didn't have any fellowship in the city. He couldn't get together like we are right now encouraging one, one another. He couldn't get together for a prayer meeting with, with other believers. And he was just tormented day after day as he saw what was taking place. And he must have said to himself, I can't believe this. Who would think to come up with drag queen story hour where grown men put on dresses and look like prostitutes to read stories to little children? Who would do that? And as he's watching that, he's, he's tormented. And then maybe heard about a 14-year-old girl confused about her sexual identity. She has her breasts cut off, saying that she'll be better. And then two years later, she regrets it. And she sues the doctors for malpractice. And God only knows if she will recover because of the physical and the psychological damage that was done to her. And as he's watching this day after day, he's, he's tormented. He can't believe that such things would take place in the city. But God says there's, there's a time when it's, when it's going to come to an end. And a day was decreed for, for Sodom and Gomorrah that the judgment would come to an end. And these examples are sober reminders that while God saves those who repent and put their faith in Christ, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is loving. He's provided salvation through Jesus Christ. But he's also a holy, righteous, and a just God. And we need to hold those in tension. They're, they're not opposed to each other. And Peter's giving us an example. He's saying, judgment's coming. And you shouldn't be naive. Just look at history. God has brought judgment in the past. He will bring judgment in the future. And then he closes with what I'm calling the principle of judgment, verse 9. 
Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. It seems that God likes to make a distinction between his people and the ungodly. His people can be rescued. His people can be saved. While at the same time, he can punish those who are his enemies and are opposed to him. I believe the Olivet Discourse uh, was given to us in part so that God's people would not be judged when Christ did come in judgment upon Jerusalem. In the Olivet Discourse in Luke 21, 20 and following, Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, he's letting them know, when you see the city of Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. It's near, it's at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance. That's very important because when an army was coming against you, your natural inclination would be flee to the city with its walls to protect you from the enemy, get inside so that they can close the gates, close the gates so you can be safe. And Jesus said, you need to know when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, you will not be safe inside the city because it's going to be destroyed. Temples going to be destroyed. There won't be one stone left upon another. It's all going to be leveled to the ground. So when you see it surrounded, literally head for the tall grass. And if you do that, you will be saved. And God's people were. Those who didn't recognize the day of their visitation when Christ came to him, but rejected Christ and called for his crucifixion and said his blood be on us and our, our children, that came. But those who turned from their sins listened to the words of Jesus and they, and they left the city. And they didn't perish when the, the judgment came upon Jerusalem. God loves to make that kind, of, that kind of distinction. Now, now, when it comes to teaching like this, God has good reasons for why he gives us hard teaching. I think sometimes we need perspective. Because for any of us, it's so easy to get caught up with what's going on in, in the world and God wants us to have an eternal perspective. He wants us, as Martin Luther said, to live every day in light of that day, talking about the day in which we're going to stand before Jesus Christ. That, has, that needs to have an impact on how we live every day. When you understand that God judges things, it, it brings things into, into clarity. I, lo I love what it did for Asaph in Psalm 73. You can turn there if you like. Asaph was one of Israel's worship leaders. And he writes this psalm talking about a struggle that he had. And the struggle was so great that he, he is honest and he says, I almost turned away from the faith. I almost apostatized and rejected my God. But the Lord was merciful to me and, and I didn't. But this, this is what he says in Psalm 73, beginning at verse 1. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So, we know God. God is good. That's what he's saying. Verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And by that, he means turn away from the faith. That's a metaphor for turning away from God and, and rejecting the faith. 
And then he tells us why in verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. How do you like that? Their bodies are fat and sleek at the same time. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And he's envying these people. They have it made. They're healthy. They're wealthy. They're wise. And it's, it's torturing him. And then in verse 13, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. It's been vain trying to live a godly, upright life before the Lord. It's all been for nothing. See what he's saying? That's pretty honest. Verse 14, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He just can't figure it out. These wicked people have it made, and, and he's, he's struggling, and he's tempted to turn away. Verse 16, but here's the turning point. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Amazing things happen when you enter into the sanctuary of God. Astounding things happen when you go to church and you sing praises to God, when you listen to his word, when you confess your sin, when you fellowship at the Lord's table. Until I went into the sanctuary, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by utter terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. All of a sudden, he realizes, wait a second. I am envying people who are driving Lamborghinis straight off the cliff. Why in the world would I do that? All of a sudden, he's got perspective. Why am I envying those people? And not only does he stop envying those people, but all of a sudden he realizes just how blessed he is because he's a Christian. Christ has died for him. He doesn't know all the details yet, but he knows that he's forgiven. He knows that he's a child of God. He knows that eternity is waiting for him. And if he knows that, regardless of what he experiences in this life, regardless of what money he may have or may not have, whatever health he may or may not have, he knows this one thing, eternity is waiting for him. He is going to be welcomed by God Almighty. And not only in the future, but even in this life, God is with him. He says in 21, my soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast be towards you, which is just a graphic way of saying I wasn't thinking clearly at all. I was behaving like an animal. And then he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. I like that. Not I hold your right hand. You hold my right hand. I love it. It's like a dad walking a kid across a dangerous highway. Hold my hand, but dad's got a hold of it. That little girl's right hand, safe. You hold my right hand. Asaph knows God has, God has a hold of him. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. And then here's what he says. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Isn't that something? I have God. Earth has nothing that I desire. I have God. If God gives it to me, thank you. I will enjoy it. But there's nothing on earth that I desire besides God. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Isn't that wonderful? I have God. How blessed I am. I forgot how blessed I was. And he has an eternal perspective. As Peter writes about false teachers being judged He's mainly thinking about comforting the Christians. He's reminding them God doesn't wink at sin. He does not wink at sin. The time is coming when they will be judged. And he's also reminding them of just how blessed they are because of all that they have in Jesus Christ. Let's close the prayer. Father, we thank you for your word thank you for the difficult passage we thank you for the hard passages and again i want to pray that every single person listening to this will understand the reality of judgment that they will learn from the judgments of the past and see that there is judgment to come for all people may we all confess our sins own up to it put our faith in christ for those of us who have put our faith in christ Help us to glory in this great salvation, this wonderful deliverance that we have from the wrath to come. Help us to see what a joy it is to have the hope of eternal life waiting for us as we reach the end of our life or even as we prepare to reach the end of our life. Hence, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.